Welcome to episode 60 of Girl Take the Lead, where each week we explore womanhood and leadership. And I'm your host, Yo Canny. This week we are celebrating International Women's Day, which is March 8th. This day helps us imagine a gender equal world, a world free of bias, stereotypes, and discrimination, a world that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive a world where difference is valued and celebrated. I'll be anchoring our conversation today with the book, Women and Leadership by Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, and Ngozi Akonjo-Iwala, who was Nigeria's finance minister and foreign minister and is now Director General of the World Health Organization. In their book, they offer us lessons from some of the world's most powerful women. I think sometimes we can feel like the challenges we face in leadership only happen to us. And these powerful women help us know that we're not alone. Enjoy the listen. When I said in the intro that Julia and Negozi did research, I wasn't kidding. The people they interviewed were eight of the world's most powerful women. And they included Jacinda Ardern, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, President of Liberia and the first woman to be elected as national leader in Africa, Michelle Bachelet, President of Chile and was the first head of UN Women, Erna Solberg, former Prime Minister of Norway, Theresa May, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Joyce Banda, Vice President of Malawi, and then President of Malawi. Christine Lagarde, first woman to lead global law firm Baker and McKinsey. She was the Minister of France and the Finance Minister. She was the first woman elected to lead the International Monetary Fund and the first and only woman to lead the European Central Bank since 2019. Hillary Clinton, First Lady of the United States, U.S. Senator, Secretary of State, and Presidential Candidate. Quite the impressive lineup, no? And somehow the authors were able to find the alignment these women shared about leadership while putting forward different perspectives. They were each asked the same set of questions, and the authors took a global approach for a worldwide perspective across cultures and continents to contrast and compare their experiences. They make the point that after the research, quote, they were left with a new understanding of the tightrope on which women leaders must balance if they are to be viewed as man enough to do the job, but feminine enough to not be viewed as unlikable or even held in contempt, end quote. And they propose a series of strategies for change, insights for aspiring women, supportive men, parents, the media, basically all of us. They did this in the chapter called Standout Lessons from Eight Lives and Eight Hypotheses. And what they did was they outlined 10 lessons. And while you might be saying, yo, these are political leaders and I am not that, there's something they had to say about that quote. We are convinced that these lessons, which have resonance in the white hot spotlight of political leadership, are also worthwhile for women seeking to be leaders in business, the law, news media, technology, local communities, 
and countless other meaningful pursuits. End quote. Here are the lessons. Lesson one, leadership actually isn't all about the hair, but sadly judgments about women are still based more on their appearance than is true for men. They don't want us to be surprised when there's a commentary about how we look. We need to expect it. They made the point that Ngozi deployed an African look that became her unique brand. And you know me, if I hear the word brand, I'm all over it. And I loved that she did that. Lesson two, there is no right way to be a woman leader. Your style of leadership is precisely that, uniquely your own, not someone else's. Hmm. Back to the unique brand, a personal brand, makes this marketer very happy to hear. Lesson three, you can try to outsmile the problem of being seen as bit of a bitch, but the criticism is in the background and could come to the foreground. How we handle this is an issue to be thought about, and they warn, once this characterization takes hold, it can be impossible to shift. Lesson four, there is no one best way to manage work, family life, including children. Darn. (laughs) I was hoping these amazing women could tell us the answer to balancing life. It was not to be. And they do say it's survivable and there will be some guilt. They say to expect it and think in advance and how to cope with it. So I thought this was a bit of a cop out, you guys. I did. I thought definitely we could do a little bit better. So I went to Brene Brown and she says, guilt, like shame, is an emotion we have when we fall short of our own expectations or standards. Our focus is having done something wrong, like holding up something we've done or failed to do against our values and find they don't match up. I also checked in with Mel Robbins in this area because I know she often has great things to say. She talked about the progress principle, which means to focus on one thing per day and do that well so that when the interruptions come, we've got that one thing done well and we can feel good about it. She also talks about being present. So it's quality versus quantity. Avoid comparing ourselves to others, but choose to be our own self. Lastly, she offers deep understanding of ourselves with empathy, compassion, and humor. And let's hear it for self-care, right? Maybe that's helpful in dealing with some of the issues regarding balance. Lesson five, the politics of scarcity will tear women as a collective apart if we let it. And they said there will be competition. Madeline Albright had the best line ever. She said, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. The author suggests to take a lifestyle approach. Quote, you may not be able to assist, mentor, and sponsor women or attend feminist meetings every day, But there will be periods in your life when you have the time and space to make a real difference. We urge you to use them to maximum advantage, to pay it forward, or as your way of paying back the women who have gone before and made space for you. So lesson six, develop practices to know who you are 
and the lines in the sand you draw for yourself. This sounds like personal branding to me, so you might want to refer to episode 52, where we talked about personal branding and laid out a process for it. That might be helpful. Lesson seven, think now about whether, how, and when you will call sexism out if it happens to you. Sadly, sexism, sharing, and silencing all exist. So plan your reactions to them now. Lesson eight, always remember to role model the positive and put people in the boat with you, whether they be sponsors, mentors, or coaches. Have a strategy and a plan and look for positive male role models and sponsors in addition to powerful women. I love that. Lesson nine, understand the power of networking. And lesson 10, have a partner to uncover our blind spots and be willing to say, are you kidding? Listen to yourself. (laughs) One of the things I really liked about this book was the inclusion of supportive men, particularly those men who man up and take on the job of calling out sexism, which they say doesn't need to be done in anger or promotes confrontation. It can be as simple as a quiet word with the perpetrator or saying in a meeting something like, I have been thinking about how important it is to make sure the things we say do not include gender stereotypes. I thought it might be good to do some shout outs and acknowledge my gratitude to some of the men in my life that helped me along in my career. And it was a good little exercise for me. You might want to do the same for yourself. So my list goes, the boyfriend who got his MBA and encouraged me to get mine and gave me my first Samsonite briefcase. My first group product manager who managed me and taught me about balance sheets and P&Ls. Finance was not my strength. My second boss who advocated for me and saved my job when his boss thought I should be laid off. My third boss who hired me and supported my new products. He really encouraged creativity. My fourth boss who agreed that it was my time to leave and move on and gave me the line, if you have a complaint, you had to get in line. My fifth boss who took out the creative director Yes, a fist fight in the conference room because the creative director was being rude. My sixth boss for promoting me to the C-suite, forever grateful. And this happened when I was pregnant with my first child. Bosses seven and eight were women I adored. And number nine did the best she could. Somewhere between eight and nine, there was one boss for a short time. When I thought he might have wrongfully terminated me, I learned that as long as you're a bully to everyone and do not single someone out, you can get away with bad behavior. And today I'm grateful not to be in that toxic culture anymore. And this last one for my last boss, who gave me a sense of space to lead and create amazing marketing programs. I have to be honest and let you know that I had to work through a lot of resentment and blame (laughs) to put this list together. It took me a while to be grateful and see how they helped me. And here's what Brene Brown said about blame. How many of you are blamers? How many of you, when something goes wrong, the first thing you want to know is whose fault it is? Here's what we know from the research. Blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. It has an inverse relationship 
with accountability. Accountability by definition is a vulnerable process. It means me calling you and saying, hey, my feelings were really hurt about this and talking. It's not blaming. Blaming is simply a way that we discharge anger. People who blame a lot seldom have the tenacity and grit to actually hold people accountable because we expend all of our energy raging for 15 seconds and figuring out whose fault something is. And blaming is very corrosive in relationships and it's one of the reasons we miss our opportunities for empathy. Because when something happens and we're hearing a story, we're not really listening. We're in the place making the connections as quickly as we can about whose fault something was. My blame was where I went when things in my life or in the job did not turn out the way I wanted. Many times I didn't take accountability and didn't know how to express feelings that I was hurt because I cared so much. I see now I had no idea how to deal with them. Maybe you all will do a lot better. Another point the authors make that I found very powerful was that one of the things these eight women had in common was that as children, they were never told leadership was only for boys. How a girl is nurtured today matters for the vision she sees of herself and her ambitions as an adult. I especially loved Hillary's story of growing up as being the eldest child in her family with two younger brothers. She stated, that her father didn't have a set of preconceived stereotypes about what she should be like and how she should act. Quote, he also never treated me or my brothers any differently. My mother was also incredibly encouraging and pushed me to be confident, to stand for myself, to assume little leadership positions with my neighborhood. End quote. If you followed my podcast for a while, you might remember our tribute to my dad in episode 11 and a couple of other times I've talked about his impact on my leadership. He was a man who in the 1960s cooked dinner, took me deep sea fishing where I learned I loved cleaning fish <laughs> and seeing what they ate. We backpacked together. I was his favorite passenger in his 64 Corvette. He supported my boycott of grapes to support the farm workers. And when I weighed over 200 pounds, he told me I could do anything if I put my mind to it. And here I am 23 years later, maintaining a 70 pound weight loss. Guys, help your daughter see that anything is possible and let them know you have their back. I got to say one more thing about Hillary. She cites Girl Scouts as an early leadership experience, as did Erna Solberg, the, the Prime Minister of Norway. So shout out to all the volunteers and staff who make Girl Scouts and other youth organizations available to build leadership skills. I'd like to end this episode with this quote from the authors. Quote, we passionately believe that every child is unique but each should be endowed with the same rights and opportunity. Each should be able to dream the same dreams, including wanting to become a president or prime minister. None should encounter extra obstacles if they aim to become a leader. End quote. And on that note, my dear friends, we'll end today. Thank you for listening. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join our public Facebook group, Girl Take the Lead, or visit our website, girltaketheleadpod.com. 
You can also email me at yo at yocanny.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be talking about forgiveness. I wanted to dig into that topic a little bit more after episode 58 about apologies. And Mel Robbins has this great um, quote that I'd like to share. Forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. Mm. I hope you'll join me again for this. Thanks for being here and talk to you soon. Bye.